0: It's, it's good to be worshipping with the saints at Lakeside. Uh, my name is John Bell. I'm one of the pastors at New City Baptist Church. We meet in Toronto. I want to extend you an open invitation. If you're ever on a weekend excursion in the city, come by to New City Baptist Church. We meet at Bloor and Bathurst. And, and as Gorge said, I'm, I'm related by marriage through the, uh, to the Brown clan, so don't hold it against me. And, uh, <laughs> and my... My wife, actually, Jillian, she was a part of uh, Lakeside Youth, I think, in the early 2000s, so we have, a, we have that connection. I don't deserve to read the Bible, much less preach it, so thank you for having me here this morning in your pulpit. Uh, I count it a great privilege. And would you open uh, your Bibles with me, please, to Luke chapter 7, and I'll be reading verses 36 through 50, our sermon text this morning, Luke chapter 7. Thirty-six through fifty, and in the last week, my eyes have changed. <laughs> I'm 44, and now I, I might have to start doing something like this. So just bear with me. I'm I'm not used to this yet. This is what holy scripture says. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50 neither of them had the money to pay him back so he he forgave the debts of both now which of them will love him more simon replied i suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven you have judged correctly jesus said then he turned toward the woman and said to simon do you see this woman i came into your house and you did not give me any water for my feet Loves little. Then Jesus said to her, Your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Let's pray. O Lord, make... The book live to us. Show yourself within your word. Show us ourselves and show us our Savior. Make the book live to us for Jesus' sake. Amen. Our sermon passage this morning is perhaps the most moving narrative of any recorded in the gospel accounts. Charles Spurgeon, the famous uh, 19th century English Baptist minister, he once said, This narrative is not one which I can well preach upon. I had far rather weep over it in secret. And that's because this passage moves our affections. It touches our hearts on so many different levels. Here we're offered a beautiful portrait of God's unmerited favor. His grace lavished upon a socially shunned sinner coming out of a wretched background. We also see a sinner's awareness of her guilt before a holy God and the willingness of Jesus to save completely, to forgive to the uttermost, even notorious sinners. And that's really the key thought. God is ready and willing to forgive the sinful debts of people. An infinite debt. Sinners could never pay for themselves and to act graciously beyond expectation. We just sang about that. And that's good news for every single person who's here today. Because every person here today is a debtor. We're all sinners. We're all rebels against God, no matter if our sins are socially acceptable or not. And this passage speaks to that. And as God's redeemed people were also, were deeply moved, or perhaps convicted, as we read of how unashamed and unembarrassed this woman's faith in Jesus is, as she naturally expresses her faith in loving service to her Savior, a service filled with gratitude and joy because Jesus has forgiven her many sins. She boldly testifies, publicly, to that forgiveness and to her love for Jesus. This sinful woman loves Jesus much because he has forgiven her much. And we're no different. We love Jesus much because he's forgiven us much, too. And that biblical reality needs to have an appropriate impact in all of our lives. We need to see that impact, for example, when we're talking to the same-sex couple who live next door. Because God's grace is rich and free. It extends to every category of sinner. It even reaches into our category and saves us. This text has a sharp, convicting edge. This story can make us weep because it shows us the hardness of our own hearts. It shows us our own disgusting self-righteousness. I weep when I read this text because I see too much of Simon the Pharisee in myself. I'm a man who's too prone to take my spiritual condition for granted. As if I've come into something that's my rightful due. As if my salvation were somehow deserved, merited, earned, and not a free gift from God. And I'm ashamed to say it, but I can too easily look at other people, saved and unsaved alike, and think in my heart, I was never that bad. I was never out and out wicked and filthy like that person. So it all makes a kind of sense. I'm a more natural candidate for salvation, for Jesus' love. And when it comes to sexual sin, and that's the elephant in the room of this text, I think the church can err on two fronts. We can dismiss the idea that there is such a thing, uh, we basically give sexual sin a free pass as long as, be- as it's between consenting adults. Um, after all, who are we to judge? Or, we can take the root of moral condescension. But how does Jesus relate to the sexually immoral? The notoriously sexually immoral? How should we? Finally, this narrative tells us a great deal about the person of Jesus Christ. In fact, this text takes place in a section of Luke's Gospel where the question is being asked over and over, who is Jesus? jesus that question is raised in verse 49 who is this one who even forgives sins and friends perhaps you're visiting this church today and you're wondering the very same thing who is jesus listen to what god's word teaches us in luke chapter 7 jesus forgives sins and that is a prerogative that's a right of god alone And it's a prerogative that Jesus has no problem taking on himself. Which tells us something about who Jesus is and what he's willing to do for you. No matter what you've done, no matter what mess you may currently find yourself in, if you repent and place your faith in him, The approach I want to take this morning is to work through this text verse by verse. We're going to go over the entire passage. We're going to be camping out on certain points along the way. I want to emphasize those points. And then we'll come back to certain verses in light of their being explained more fully through Jesus' parable of the two debtors and Jesus' rebuke and application of that parable to Simon the Pharisee. So I trust you have a Bible open on your lap or on your phone. We're going to be following the text quite closely. Let's begin in verse 36. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. Now, why Simon the Pharisee invited Jesus to dinner, we don't know. It could just be curiosity. The text tells us that Simon is willing to believe that Jesus may be a prophet. uh, Or his invitation could be a meritorious work of hospitality. Perhaps Simon thinks he's racking up legalistic goody uh, brownie points with god uh, or it could be for a more noble purpose Uh, this is still in chapter 7 it's still relatively early in jesus ministry and perhaps simon wants to make sure that the people of israel aren't being duped by a false teacher a wolf in sheep's clothing he's a pharisee Uh, whatever the case simon invites this itinerant rabbi a man he believes may be a prophet sent from god over for a meal and because of his role in society, as a religious leader, everyone in the community would consider Simon to be an honorable man. So, if you received an invitation from Simon the Pharisee for dinner, you could pat yourself on the back. You were doing very well, socially speaking. But bear in mind Luke chapter 5. Jesus also accepted a meal invitation from Levi, the tax collector, someone who was considered to be the scum of the earth. Look back at chapter 5 for a moment uh, in verse 29. Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house, and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to his disciples, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So what does that tell us? It tells us that Jesus makes himself available to all types of people, from all types of backgrounds. He's just as willing to eat with sinners and social pariahs as he is with religious and the social elite. It's not the healthy who need a doctor. It's the sick. And though Simon the Pharisee, he doesn't know this... He is a gravely ill man. Now, we can't be sure, but Jesus is probably the guest of honor at what's called a Sabbath banquet. That's a special public meal where the doors are left open so uninvited guests can come in, sit by the wall, and hear the conversation. Which is probably why uh, the sinful woman's presence at the meal is never made an issue. Uh, She has no invitation. She has a horrible reputation in the town. But she's never given the bums rush because, in theory, she's allowed to be there for the Sabbath banquet. Verse 37 A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisees' house. Now, Luke doesn't tell us the precise nature of her sin. Uh, but she's probably either a prostitute or an adulteress. And every commentator I read leaned toward the prostitute side of the interpretation. Uh, But before pressing on, we need to be careful not to confuse this account with the account recorded for us in John 12, Mark 14, and Matthew 26 of Mary, the sister of Lazarus, anointing Jesus' head and feet with expensive perfume before wiping it, uh, his feet with her hair. Uh, you'll recall that Judas Iscariot, he became upset, indignant, and he told, that, he told Jesus that this perfume should have been sold and given to the poor. It's all been wasted on Jesus. Uh, that's a separate, different story. During his public ministry, Jesus had a woman wipe his feet with her hair on more than one occasion. As well... This sinful woman in Luke 7 is not Mary Magdalene. Uh, There's no biblical support for that claim or that Mary Magdalene was ever a prostitute. Uh, The Bible never tells us that, uh, though it's become part of Christian folklore that she was. Verse 37 again. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. Okay, stop, stop again. I want us to pretend that we're reading this account for the first time in our lives. Because if we were, I'm sure we wouldn't think twice if that sentence, if verse 37, concluded in a different way. For instance, a woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she decided to stay well clear of the place because her reputation was mud, And she was worried about what others would think of her being in such close proximity to them. And that would make a lot of sense, uh, particularly considering it's a Pharisee's house. Uh, Or, so she decided to slink into the Pharisee's house, sit quietly against the wall, hope no one would notice her, and listen to Jesus speak quiet as a church mouse. But instead, this woman, whose reputation is notorious... She behaves in a fashion that's very conspicuous. It's very noticeable, but it's conspicuous in a way that shines a light on Jesus. This is so important. Even though the door to the Sabbath meal, in theory, is open to all, her coming there still required great, great courage. But something has happened to this woman that's trumped all of her social fear. Something which compels her to enter the, this religious leader's home and act in this way and do these things in front of all of these people. This, the, the woman, she says nothing, but her actions speak a thousand words, all of them pointing to the forgiveness of her many sins and her love and her gratitude for Jesus. And there is a definite connection in her mind between those two things. The forgiveness of her many sins and Jesus of Nazareth. And her response to that forgiveness is a flood of love and gratitude toward Jesus. Now, how well that connection is worked out in her mind, how orthodox even that connection is, we don't know. Remember, this is well before the cross. And it's on the cross where Jesus atones for sin. This woman's sins, which are many, are ultimately forgiven in chapter 23. But this woman, only seven chapters into Luke's gospel, seems to have a clearer connection between the forgiveness of her sin and faith in Jesus than anyone else we meet in the entire gospel, until perhaps we come to the criminal dying on the cross next to Jesus. This sinful woman's God-given insight, at this point, is remarkable. At, At the very least, she's thinking, my many wicked sins have been forgiven by God, and I have Jesus to thank for it. Verse 37, a woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisees' house, so she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him, at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. So, picture this scene in your mind. Jesus would be lying on his, on his left side, right? He's facing the table. His feet are angling away from the table. He's eating his food with his right hand. And, and as he's eating, this woman stands behind him at his feet, and she begins to cry, so much so that her tears fall on his feet. And the Greek term that Luke uses for weeping is also used in the New Testament for for showers of rain because Luke wants us to understand that this is more than light whimpering and, and sniffing daintily into a hanky, right? What's being described here, friends, is a powerful emotional release. In the language of the Greek text, this woman is drenching Jesus' dusty feet with her tears. Then she stoops down to kiss his feet, pour perfume on his feet, and wipe his feet with her hair. You know. let's, let's imagine for a moment that it's three in the morning and your house is on fire. And it's a really bad fire. Your house is burning to the ground. Uh, and you and your spouse, you're out safely on your front yard when suddenly you realize, oh, our children are still inside. You somehow forgot that you had kids. You know, Don't, don't get too Freudian about that, but... Uh, but it's a raging inferno now, and your children are still inside. To all appearances, all is lost. You know, Fortunately, I happen to be passing by, and I do not hesitate. I grab a fireman's axe, and I break down the door, and I breathe the smoke, and I go from room to room. I rescue all seven of your children and your cat to boot, and I bring your kids out, and the cat and your family, they're all tearfully reunited on the front yard. And I'm sure, if that, if that actually happened, I would be on the receiving end of a great deal of gratitude, right? Now, I'd be very humble about it uh, when, I'm talking to the rep- when I'm talking to the reporters, right? Yeah. No, I'm not a hero. Anybody would have done that. Shucks, I was just being a good neighbor, right? But the fact remains, I risked my life to save your children. So, a nice dinner at Rhubarb. That would, be, that would be totally appropriate. But I wouldn't expect you to humble yourself into the dust. There comes a point when gratitude just becomes awkward. Uh, ladies, if you expressed your appreciation to me for saving the lives of your children in the same way this woman in Luke 7 does, I, I'd gently but firmly push you away. I wouldn't allow you to humble yourself to that extent. It's not appropriate. But it seems, in this woman's mind, that there's nothing she can do to serve Jesus or to honor Jesus that's too much or inappropriate. And and Jesus accepts that as a fact. Jesus does not push her away. Jesus accepts her love. He accepts her gratitude. It's not over the top and awkward. It's only appropriate. Who is this man, Jesus? And what's he done for this woman? Verse 39. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet... He would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Simon, the host, he's disturbed by these goings-on, and he begins to seriously doubt Jesus' prophetic credentials. And it's, it's pathetically fascinating to see how narrow a view and how wrong a view Simon has concerning all these things that are going on in his house. He completely, completely misses the boat. Simon reasons that a prophet sent by God would be able to discern the type of woman anointing him. One commentator writes, In Simon's judgment, Jesus can't be a prophet because he lets sinners get too close to him, at least closer than he, a Pharisee, would allow. Simon is a man who is bursting with disgusting self-righteousness, isn't he? He's thinking... How can this man truly be sent from God? He's not tucking his feet under his body and shooing this harlot away in righteous indignation. Friends, do we see how blind Simon's pride and spiritual condescension has made him? Simon is a man who has no understanding of God's grace. He has no understanding of the infinite repugnance of his own sin in God's sight, of the sinful debt that he could never hope to pay himself. Why this woman is acting in this fashion, why she has such love for Jesus and is showering Jesus with such gratitude, that never enters his mind. Even though Simon's only thinking these self-righteous, prideful, disgusting things, he's not saying them out loud. Verse 40 begins this way. Jesus answered him. Simon, I have something to tell you. And what Jesus has to tell Simon is the divine revelation of knowledge. Jesus is God. Luke has made that clear to his readers in the chapters that have come before. And so Jesus speaks now with all the authority of God. And he doesn't just state a propositional truth to Simon and then leave it at that. He uses a parable. And how Jesus answers Simon in the following parable shows, quite ironically, that Jesus does know the kind of woman who is anointing his feet. And Jesus also knows who the man is that's questioning his credentials. Jesus knows both the woman's identity and the Pharisee's thoughts, which means he's doubly the prophet that Simon takes him to be. Jesus has read Simon's thoughts, and God incarnate, Simon's creator, rebukes Simon. And, brothers and sisters, he rebukes all of us. Listen carefully. Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. 50 denarii is about two months' wages. 500 denarii is about one and three quarters years' wages. Verse 42. Neither of them had the money to pay him back. And... That little piece of information is essential to the story. Yes, one owed less, one owed ten times more, but both were unable to pay back their creditor. Now comes the twist, 42B. So he forgave the debts of both. That's extraordinary. Under the law, if these debtors are insolvent, the moneylender has the right to sell the debtor and his family into slavery. But instead, he just forgives the debt? That's supposed to evoke the same reaction in Jesus' hearers as learning that it was a Samaritan of all people who stopped and helped, or that the against father ran down the road and kissed his prodigal son. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Beloved, this passage is operating on so many levels. There are so many themes coming from this this one passage that we could explore. I mentioned about half a dozen in my introduction, but this theme, the theme of free, total forgiveness, no matter the size of the debt, is at its heart. It's the key theme. Friends, God is ready and willing to forgive the sinful debts of people. An infinite debt. Sinners could never pay for themselves and to act graciously beyond expectation. He's done that for every believer here today. No matter what kind of sin we were consumed by before God granted us faith to believe the gospel. And he'll do the same for any person, any person, who repents and believes in Jesus Christ. It certainly won't be the nature or the degree of your sin that keeps you from full salvation. Only your lack of faith. Salvation is all of grace. It's unmerited favor. The forgiveness of our sins and reconciliation with God is not what any person deserves. It isn't a spiritual condition any of us can merit. And we see this exemplified in Jesus' parable. It's it's the the gracious character of the act of just canceling the debt. That's the basis for the sinner's love. And Jesus makes this point by raising a question. Which of the two debtors will respond with more love? Which of them will love the creditor more? Verse 43, Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. The larger the debt forgiven, the larger the gratitude and love that emerge in response. All right, so let's unpack that parable a bit. Uh, the parable has three main characters. We have the money lender, the debtor forgiven more, and the debtor forgiven less. So I would argue, following Craig Blomberg's theory of interpreting parables, that Jesus is making three points because each character represents a different lesson. So point number one Like the man owing 50 denarii, those who take their spiritual condition for granted and are not aware of having been forgiven of numerous gross sins should not despise those who have been redeemed from a more wretched state. Point number two, like the debtor owing 500 denarii, those who recognize they have much for which to be thankful will naturally respond in generous expressions of love for Jesus. Point three, like the moneylender, God forgives both categories of sinners and allows them to begin again with a clean slate. Now, my sermon is not on this parable. It's on the entire narrative of verses 36 through 50. This parable is only two verses long. It plays a part in the overall narrative, but I'm not going to unpack those three points at length. It's it's there on the uh, the PowerPoint, and I'm going to just leave it there for your consideration. Because once Jesus states the parable, he develops it. He adds to it. And he rebukes Simon in a way that goes beyond point number one of the 50 denarii debtor. Jesus' rebuke to Simon is tailored to the specific context of the sinful woman's great love for Jesus and Simon's lack of love for Jesus. Verse 44. Then Jesus turned toward the woman and said to Simon... Oh, sorry. Sorry. He turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? So just just picture that in your mind. It's very interesting. Jesus is, is looking at the woman while he's rebuking Simon. I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. Now, it's debated whether the washing of guests' feet was required for the host. All the commentators I read thought Probably not. It's not absolutely required. Uh, But when it was performed, it became an expression of exceptional consideration. So at the minimum, it's clear the woman showed more courtesy and interest in Jesus than Simon did. Simon has done less than he could have. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. You do not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. So do you see what our, our Lord is doing? He, he's applying the parable to the current situation by contrasting Simon's lack of courtesy to Jesus to the woman's love for Jesus. He's contrasting Simon's lack of a friendly kiss, of greeting on Jesus' cheek, versus the woman's non-stop kisses of gratitude and joy upon Jesus' feet. He's contrasting the anointing of Jesus' feet with perfume with the unfriendly lack of Simon anointing Jesus' head with oil. For the woman, all these acts are not a sign of friendship. They're all signs of humility and appreciation. They're all signs of an awareness of Jesus' approachableness and his forgiveness. This woman has shown Jesus nothing but respect. Not so, Simon. Verse 47. Therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. And that's the verse where everything comes into focus. Why the woman is acting the way that she is. Her loving actions testify to the presence of God's great, great forgiveness. Because the woman has been forgiven much, she loves much. Like the debtor owing 500 denarii, those who recognize they have much for which to be thankful will naturally respond in generous expressions of love for Jesus. Friend, have you been forgiven of your sinful debt by Jesus Christ? Has he wiped your slate clean? How should you then live? Know this. Nothing is over the top. Nothing is going too far. Jesus will not be embarrassed for your sake and push you away and not accept the most costly of all sacrifices and love offerings for him. It's only appropriate. You've been forgiven a debt you could never repay. And those of us who recognize we have much for which to be thankful will naturally respond in generous expressions of love for Jesus. It's our privilege. So what is then the true and proper biblical response of a sinner to justified by God, forgiven by God, renewed and filled with God's Spirit, and all of it owing to the measureless mercy lavished upon us in Jesus' substitutionary sacrifice on the cross. Brothers and sisters, be very, very careful at this point. This picture in Luke 7 of a forgiven sinner crying at the feet of Jesus Christ and wiping his dusty feet with her Hair. We can respond emotionally to that. We can too easily think, Oh, how I wish that were me. How I'd love to show my love for Jesus by humbling myself and cleaning his dusty feet. I wouldn't give the awkward social tension a second thought as I humbled myself into the dust before my Savior. But I'm not prepared to truly repent and stop looking at porn. I'd love to wash Jesus' feet in love, but I'm not prepared to jeopardize my reputation at work and possibly my job and thus my income by speaking to my co-workers of Jesus Christ and his love for sinners. If Jesus came into the office, I'd kiss his feet. And all of my colleagues would be shocked because not one of them is aware that Jesus is my Savior. Because I've never once proclaimed to them what God's accomplished in the death and resurrection of his Son for sin. And in consequence, what he will accomplish in the new heavens and new earth. I'd love to wash Jesus' feet. But I'm not prepared to prioritize things in my life so that I am consistently, faithfully meeting with God's people Sunday morning to worship Him corporately or pray with God's people or be hospitable to them or to serve them. I'm not prepared to love my enemies. I'm not prepared to submit to my husband. I'm not prepared to love my wife sacrificially and for her good. I'm not prepared to be generous with the money that God has entrusted to me. I'm not prepared to submit to the elders of this church. I'm not prepared to obey my parents and do what they tell me the first time. I'd love to wash Jesus' feet, though, but I'm not prepared to pick up my cross, that instrument of torture, shame, and death, and follow my Lord to Calvary to die. Die to self, die to reputation, die to glory and respect in this world. Die to comfort. Brothers and sisters, the forgiven Sinner responds to the salvation mercies of God in love with the dedicatory worship of their entire existence. We offer up 100% of ourselves to God as a living sacrifice. Nothing is held back in autonomous reserve. Here's my little portion, right? And all in remembrance of the atoning sacrifice of Jesus. How does the old hymn put it? Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. If the whole universe was my gift to give back to God, it's too small. That's what that's saying. The way that we obediently live in response to the mercy of God, lavished upon us in the gospel, lies at the heart of our love for Jesus. Of course, Simon himself stands in contrast to the woman. Simon takes his spiritual condition and standing before God for granted. He's a picture of the one who is forgiven little, or who thinks, thinks he's been forgiven little, and thus loves little. He looks down on others who have been redeemed from a more wretched state. Even though he himself has a debt load of sin, he could never hope to repay in a million lifetimes. Verse 47, Therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. Now, if we stop and think about that for a second, it's a bit puzzling to understand. At one level, Jesus' point is clear. The person who has been forgiven many things is likely to be more thankful to the benefactor than the person who has been forgiven little. And if we restrict ourselves to the conduct of Simon and the woman, then that's certainly true. Uh, She is overcome with tears of sheer gratitude. He is stuffy and condescending. Uh, Whoever has been forgiven little loves little. But if we press the point too hard, the Lord saved me when I was 21 years old. Before that time, I certainly indulged in my fair share of sinning. I was more rebellious than many, but I wasn't a complete barbarian. I was a nice guy. I was kind. I was considerate. I was a well-regarded person compared to a lot of people. I lived a relatively good life. What I'm saying is at the social level, I had a good reputation. And I'm following a line of thinking developed by Don Carson here, but if we press the last part of verse 47 hard, whoever has been forgiven little loves little, wouldn't that mean I inevitably love God less than a Christian who has been converted out of a life of abysmal degradation. What do you think? Maybe there's some benefits to being totally degraded before conversion, because then we depreciate appreciate God's grace in proportion to the degree of depravity God's grace had to overcome. No, that misses the point. At the social level, yes, of course, the woman's sins are much worse than the Pharisees. But the gradations of sin that we make at the social level are nothing, nothing compared to the awfulness of the rebellion in which each of us has indulged against God. Simon the Pharisee has not yet even got to the place where he perceives that he needs to be forgiven. So suppose two people have been converted, one from a socially despicable background and one from a disciplined and righteous background. What then? Both ought to pray that they, may use, that they may see the ugliness of their own sin, whether those sins are socially disapproved, or those truly ugly sins often condemned by Jesus of arrogance and self-righteousness. Loved ones, unless we are given grace to see the horror of our own sin, We will never grasp the glory of God's grace. And we will love Jesus too little. And then Jesus reinforces the woman's forgiveness, and he also encourages her by announcing that her sins are forgiven. Look at verse 48. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this? Who even forgives sins? Because the right to forgive sins, that's a prerogative of God alone. And this introduces another element into the account, Jesus' identity. Verse 50, Jesus said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. And in light of where the book of Luke takes us in the coming chapters, we know that ultimately, this sinful woman's salvation is accomplished through Jesus' death and resurrection. When Jesus says, go in peace, he is talking, ultimately, about the peace with God sinners gain through being in right covenant relationship with him. It's not all spelled out yet, but the language is filled with anticipation. Luke's narrative is rushing towards the cross. That's the climax of the whole story. And the language of verse 50 anticipates ultimate salvation, ultimate covenantal peace all accomplished through the cross and resurrection of Christ. Lakeside, in conclusion, let me say we must understand, we must believe that God is ready and willing to forgive the sinful debts of people, an infinite debt. Sinners could never pay for themselves and act gloriously beyond all expectation, not just in doctrinal theory, but also in our attitude towards other sinners. That's where the truth of this is going to be borne out in each of our lives. We must believe that there is heavenly joy over the lost person who repents, no matter how deplorable and wretched a situation, socially speaking, they may be coming from. The Bible tells us God is not the God of the few, the God of the wise, the God of only those who think they pursue God, like Simon the Pharisee. He is the God who searches and who finds and who cares for unlovable, spiritually bankrupt and infinitely indebted sinners. Sinners like you. Sinners like me. The Bible tells us that the ground is level at Calvary because all sinners are saved by grace. And that biblical reality that saved us must be evident in our own thoughts and attitudes, no matter our culture, our age, or our experiences. So I want to press us. I want to ask, do we really believe that there does not exist a category of sin Or a class of sinner whose sins are so extreme that the substitutionary, sacrificial, wrath-absorbing death of Jesus Christ will not save their souls? If so... If we really believe that, then we must not be a judgmental people. We must not be a judgmental people. We must not allow any type of moral condescension to remain in the soil of our heart. That sin is a weed that must be pulled up by the root. It's nothing less, brothers and sisters, than a denial of the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That he extends to guilty infinitely indebted sinners. And were it true, that would leave us groping around in the filth of our idolatry without any hope. So, banish all self-righteousness, Christian. Banish all moral condescension. We must never take salvation as something that was coming our way as a matter of course, something we pretty much had coming our way from the get-go, because we're somehow inherently lovable. As if our rank sins did not cover the highest mountain peak. As if our sinful debt were something we could ever pay back to God in a million lifetimes. Not one member of this church is a natural, deserving candidate for salvation. It would be just as fitting and proper to see Pastor Paul Graham or John Bell or you being tormented in hell as Adolf Hitler. Amen? Amen. Don't be surprised, Christian. God is very indiscriminate with whom he lavishes his love upon. He is quite unrestrained. He is quite uninhibited. His salvation love overflows to innumerable hosts of unlikely people. Just look at the membership role of this church, right? You're a motley crew. New City Baptist Church is a motley crew. And if God in his mercy, if he saves by his grace men and women who are sexually immoral, and if he would give you the privilege of being his agent in proclaiming the gospel to such fellow sinners, sinners who are just as needy as yourself of having the infinite debt of their sin canceled at the cross of Christ, And if they were to believe the gospel and be baptized and join their brothers and sisters at Lakeside Church, you wouldn't want that person to feel one bit different from any other forgiven sinner in the membership. And then the world would know that at Lakeside Church, the saints believe and live out what the Bible teaches, that the ground at Calvary's Hill is level. And it's level in your hearts, too. And no one person's sin is, made out, is not made out to be more repugnant than another's, because salvation is of grace. And that's my prayer, that you would have the joy of seeing this truth displayed at this local church, all to the glory of God. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, what joy, what gratitude, what love fills our hearts, since by your Spirit we have come to better understand this amazing portion of Scripture. What a glorious, gracious, merciful, loving God you are. We are left in worshipful, grateful wonder. Your people praise you, Lord, for full salvation. We praise you for the incomparable riches of your grace poured out on undeserving sinners like us. And we praise you for your inexpressible love, lavished upon those who by nature are deserving of your wrath. Keep us humble, we pray. Keep us perpetually shocked, marveling at the infinite magnitude of your grace towards sinners in your Son, Jesus. A salvation accomplished only through his sin, atoning death, and life-giving resurrection. We thank you in his name, Christ Jesus the Lord. Amen.